This is the third try of trying to get this chapter started today. It's chapter 11 in Night Studio, A Memoir of Philip Guston by Musa Mayer. And the title of the chapter is, If This Be Not I. And there's a great image on the front title page here of this chapter. It's, well, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's an abstraction of some sort. And it, but it has figurative reality, familiarity with some of his other work. It has the almost like patchwork soles of shoes patched around this heart, heart heart-like form. Now we're going to hear all the neighborhood sounds. I've had so many distractions this morning between phone calls and cats and, um, yeah, wow. I'm a little just, I'm a little rattled. Anyway, oh, I'm not going to be rattled. So the image is great. I'll put it in the, I'll put it in the, uh, image, the, the picture part of this cast. It's like got hammers and different <clears throat> nails and things stuck into this form that looks like a heart. It's really quite effective as of drawing. It's untitled, 1980. It doesn't have a title. If This Be Not I is the name of the chapter. local police. This is a neighborhood, 25 mile, na- mile per hour neighborhood that has a lot of kids in this neighborhood. saw a bike rider going by. Okay, so this chapter, <clears throat> this chapter doesn't want to get read today, I think. It starts out with a quote by T.S. Eliot. I wrote, I think I read the quote better the second time I tried to record this because I was so angry with my cat. <laughs> oh no, not you again. <laughs> I'm just going to ignore her, okay, everybody. You have no idea the distractions I've been going through to try to get this chapter read today. <clears throat> Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by way wherein there is no ecstasy. Let me try this again. This is T.S. Eliot from East Coker. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. I think that's better. T.S. Eliot. My parents have been having dinner at home of their friends Fred and Sylvia Elias, a physician and his wife who owned several Guston paintings, when my father had another heart attack. I must say, it's been hard to read about this whole thing. My father died of a heart attack very young in his life. He just put his head down and he was go- and was gone, Fred told me the next day in Woodstock. I did. I mean, I tried. He shook his head as if to clear it from the memory, clear it of the memory. What about your mother? He asked. She can't stay here alone. 
We were standing on the back porch. I stared at the gray cedar shingles, the pattern of the flagstones under our feet. The sunlight poured down like a physical assault. I don't know, I said. I haven't had a chance. Of course you haven't, Sylvia, patted my arm. If there's anything, anything at all. My mind had halt my mind had halted. I couldn't seem to pull my thoughts together. Carl Fortress Fortis, sorry, a friend who had met my bus. Sorry. <laughs> Carl Fortis, a friend who had met my bus, took me aside. The funeral home wants someone from the family to he paused. I'll take you if you want. I nodded, trying to absorb what he meant. At the funeral home late that afternoon, I signed the necessary papers for the cremation and stood up to leave. I walked slowly across the room and stopped, my hand on the open door. Beyond the manicured lawns of the elaborate Victorian structure, the shape of Overlook Mountain was flat, a cardboard pasted up against a white sky. Was there something else? The man asked. I shook my head. I wanted to see my father's body, but I couldn't bring myself to ask. It was a day filled with things left unsaid. <clears throat> Waking every morning to the high white ceiling and north window of my girlhood studio, now a guest room, I was 12 or 13 again. For a moment, it was one of those endless Woodstock summers, and I was lying in bed, savoring the long day ahead of me, riding my bicycle through the blue morning coolness to the life drawing class at the Art Students League, swimming in the heat of the afternoon at the big deep, then riding home to my studio with my poems and drawings tacked up on the walls. My father was back in his stone studio, working comforting tap-tapping of my mother's typewriter could faintly be heard from the house. The whole world seemed poised on the verge of something then, limitless in its possibilities. Coming back to the present with a sickening jolt, I would lie there, sweating, my heart racing. My father was dead. It wasn't possible. I should have made them show me his body. I just couldn't make myself believe it. But then, neither could my mother, and she'd been with him when he died. She kept seeing him through the kitchen window standing beside the studio door. This scared me. I kept on stupidly repeating things to her I thought would be comforting. How good it was that Philip had lived for the opening of his retrospective. How important our time together in San Francisco had been. I tried to take charge to make sure the necessary things were done. People brought food and sat around telling stories about my father. The New York Times obituary came out. As word spread, the telephone began ringing. What were the plans? When would the funeral be? Would there be sort, some sort of memorial service in the city? And how was Musa? Could they speak to her? I made apologies for my mother, saying she was resting. As people came and went, she lay in the bedroom, curled up on her side, 
of their big bed, taking up hardly any space. Sealed off somewhere inside herself, she let herself be led through the day's necessities. Occasionally, she would emerge from her room, a polite smile pasted on her face. The conversation would stop. People would get up, offer to get her something. My mother hated being the center of attention. I could tell how uneasy it made her. Sitting in the oak chair, cap, sorry, sitting in the oak captain's chair at the kitchen table that had been my father's seat, she would eat mechanically, dutifully, not speaking. But wasn't there anything people would whisper to me later? Anything at all they could do for her? I didn't know. I'd go in and sit on her bed and ask her questions. Did she want to talk to so-and-so? Open the day's mail? No, she didn't want anyone. Only him. Even my presence was barely tolerated. Finally, the date for the funeral was set. I had some slight idea of what my father had wanted from our conversation in the hospital the year before. Philip Roth later told me that my father had spoken to him once about being buried. Better as a Jew than a Bohemian, he said. He'd said, and so a rabbi was found. The speakers were chosen. Now, what remained was to find a place for some sort of gathering afterwards. People in the Hudson Valley recall, recall the spring of 1980 as the worst year of their of the periodic gypsy moth infestation within memory. The larvae of the insect had completely defoliated thousands of acres in the Catskills. Whole mountainsides were as bare and brown as if it had been mid-winter. In most of Woodstock, it had become impossible to stand under trees without the black, brightly spotted caterpillars sliding down on their silken threads and dropping on one's head and shoulders. We stayed indoors with the curtains drawn. One day that week, I remember standing on the back porch, watching with a sort of morbid fascination as one of the caterpillars, methodically, in neat serrated rows like a tiny eating machine, chewed up the last leaf on the hickory tree outside the kitchen window. Awful as it was, it seemed fitting to me, somehow, the devastation outside mirroring the devastation within. Except for the pines and hemlocks, all the trees around my parents' house were bare. The birds were gone. Day and night, the loudest sound outdoors was the rainfall pattering of larvae droppings and an enormous aggregate of minute chopping noises, a symphony of feeding. The old Maverick concert hall, just down the road from us, the most suitable and natural setting for such a gathering was out of the question. The woods around it was completely infested. In the end, we were offered the back lawn of the Woodstock Artists Association, despite the fact that my parents had avoided the local artists group for many years. On the day, on the day before the funeral, Tom took me to pick up my father's ashes. Inside the white cardboard box was another box of brown plastic, no larger than a good-sized book that had been completely sealed. Not what I had expected at all, this neat package. 
I remembered how I had cupped my hands to receive my share of a friend's ashes in Ohio, the rough, gritty feel of the bits of white powder and bone I'd scattered on his land. After the first shock that had, that had seemed real and fitting, returning him to earth. But this? This was so sterile and concealed. I held the box in my lap on the way home, opening the white flap, peering inside at the smooth brown plastic, then closing it. It seemed to weigh nothing at all. My father's remains should have been like collapsed matter, so dense as to be unstoppable, falling through earth. Surely what was left of him was, wasn't contained in that ugly little box. Shaking, I got out of the car, ran into the studio, and set the box in the center of his large drawing table under the white hanging light. His presence flowed outward from the table to the corners of the empty room in a big wave. The studio was cool and bright. Every object seemed coated with a porcelain, lucid calm. I tiptoed across the room, then caught myself at it. I still felt like an invader, a trespasser. I had never been alone in my father's studio before this past week. The piney smell of turpentine was comforting, familiar. Or is that the penny smell? I'll have to remember that word. I walked over to his pallet, a glass a glass-topped rolling table that stood beside his painting wall in the center of the studio. Beneath the wall on the floor, an encrusted line of clotted paint scraps. Sorry, I'm getting distracted by the noises outside my window. Beneath the wall on the floor, an encrusted line of clotted paint scrappings lay in a thick row. I touched the palette's surface, the swirls and mounds of cals... I touched the palette's surface the swirls and mounds of cadmium red and black and white and was surprised to find some of the paint still soft under the rubbery crests that had formed. Had he worked here recently? That recently? But no, the brushes in their can were mired in a thick brown glue. The paint rag was stiff. On the big angled wall on the far side of the studio, opposite his painting wall, were pinned his last paintings and drawings small works in acrylic and ink, done in the last month or two, secured with pushpins. So there was no space at all between them. They formed a quilt of images, alive and complex. They'd been done, they'd been done at the same time, at the same, this same drawing table where his ashes and their box were now, were sitting now. Sorry, I'm trying to get my pages ready here. <clears throat> some were ink drawings, some painted in acrylics, the forms then shaped and modeled with quill pen and ink. Despite their size, bes- despite their small size, they had the emblematic power of his largest recent work. I recognized familiar forms, friends, a mound of cherries, a flat iron, a sandwich, a kettle, a ladder with woven nailed legs, the pull chain of a light, trash can lids. But there were other stranger images. 
crawling forms that attempted to scale a sloping brownish plain, among them a stone tablet bifurcated like the Ten Commandments, the laws of Moses, but also resembling a gravestone inscribed 1980 PG. There was a head, his head, unmistakably, with its huge eye, more nearly round, now and gray as stone, the face battered and bandaged, looking up the brown incline as if at some Sisyphean task. In another work, familiar forms, the shoes and legs and lids and stretchers and nails were snowballed up into a mass of stuff. The sunset was backdrop, or was it sunrise, perhaps, and the brownish slope some ooze of creation? But no, the ball rolled everywhere, gathering and collecting, clearing the landscape, emptying the room. In one drawing, it made ready to roll out an open, open door. So that must be what the drawing is on the front page here, the title page, but it sure looks like a heart form as well. Interesting. Would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. Eliot's lines from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, Prufrock came to me with a shudder. One of the paintings was very much like a larger work from 1978 called The Tomb. I just did a painting which I shall call The Tomb or The Artist's Tomb my father had written when he saw what he had made. So it is truly a bitter comedy that is being played out. Painting which duplicates and is kind of a substitute for your life. As lived from hour to hour, day to day, there is no such thing as a picture. It is, impo- it is an impossibility, a mirage to believe so. Nothing is stable. All is shifting, changing. Wow, you know what? I'm, um, Unfortunately, I'm getting too emotional right now to read this, I think. I think I might stop here. Um, I think what I'm doing is <laughs> reading about her experience of of looking at his work after he's passed. And I'm also thinking of things I need to do <laughs> to prepare for my own death and for my own kids to maybe at least know this part of my life. How weird. Let's see if I can shake this and just finish this page. Painting which duplicates and is a kind of substitute for your life as lived from hour to hour, day to day. There is no such thing as a picture. It is an impossibility and a mirage to believe so. 
Nothing is stable. All is shifting, changing. I think I might have to write that out and put it in my studio. Just after dawn in the morning of the funeral, my mother and Tom and I went to the artist's cemetery in Woodstock. Our shadows were long and the grass still wet with dew. Birdsong echoed in the woods. Above us, the dome of sky was already a hazy whitish blue. It would be another hot day. Taking the shovel we had brought taking the shovel we had brought with us, Tom began to dig. Beside me, my mother clutched the brown plastic box. In the artist's cemetery in Woodstock, the gravestones are all flat, inset into the earth. Nothing can protrude above the level of the grass. No plantings, no monuments, no urns of geraniums. I could almost pretend that we were standing in a mowed field, a simple grassy slope, ringed by mountains and woods. Tom stepped back and wiped his forehead. My mother knelt and after a long time set my father's ashes inside the deep hole. With them we put brushes and paint, tubes of cadmium red medium, Mars black, titanium white. His colors. I knelt beside my mother and we refilled the grave together. The earth seemed like a living thing that morning The earth seemed like a living thing that morning, moist and glistening particles of soil that left no stain or mark on our hands. The bunches of peonies we'd brought from a neighbor's garden, pink and white and deep crimson red, needed water. I walked up the hill to the monument. From this high vantage point, the graves below lay like necklaces on the grassy breast of the hill. Beyond the deep green of the woods, untouched yet by the gypsy moths, rolled away to the blue mountains. How glad I was that we had done his burial ourselves, the family alone, with no help and no intrusion. The rest was for the others. My father belonged to them now. They would make of him what they wanted, give him his niche, his myth, his place in their theories. At the top of the cemetery hill, an oval blue stone dice, dice, flanked by rhododendron brush, bushes and stone benches, was surmounted by a 12-foot-tall block of ro- rough-quarried bluestone, which bore a plaque with the inscription... Quote, encircled by the everlasting hills, they rest here, who added to the beauty of the world by art, creative thought, and by life itself. End quote. Beside the, mountain, beside the monument was an old iron hand pump. Setting the glass jars we had brought for the flowers down on the stone, I began to move the handle up and down. There was a delicate fluting sound as water rose in the throat of the well and spilled over into the jar. 
overflowing onto the flagstones. I cupped my hand beneath the spout to taste the sweetness of the well water mixed with the iron flavor of the old pump. For a moment, despite the morning's heat, I felt chilled. Something. The water's taste, perhaps, or the rusty screech of the pump handle had hurled me back in time. Inside, somewhere, a door opened, a blasty, a blast of icy air entered a warm kitchen, and there was my father in his red plaid wool jacket, stamping the snow from his boots. The pail of water in his gloved hand filmed with ice, just the thinnest layer of starry glass on its surface that broke when I touched it. I walked back down the hill to my father's grave, carrying the full jars, passing people I'd known growing up, my father's friends, names like Milman, Macafin, Kuniyoshi, Refugier, Wendy Jones, a childhood playmate I'd had a crush on for years. Dead at 21 on a motorcycle in Putney, Vermont, carved in the blue stone below his name and dates below Carved in the blue stone below his name and dates, a small boat sailed away, healing far into the wind. A cello was engraved on the stone of Hans Cohn, my doctor when I was a child. I remembered his stern face, bent gravely over his instrument, playing in a string quartet at the Maverick Concert Hall. At the bottom of the hill beside the woods, in the sort of shrine with the glazed terracotta Madonna and child in the Della Robbia style was the grave of Ralph Radcliffe Whitehead, the builder of Birdcliffe, the first artist's colony. <laughs> that afternoon, when, I, when we returned to the cemetery for the service, without thinking, I began to walk toward my father's grave rather than up the hill to where the rabbi waited beside the monument. My mother followed me, unquestioning, Tom supporting her. Suddenly I stopped, aware all at once that the crowd of people, so many, had begun to follow us down the hill. They seemed to be closing in, all those sad, aging faces from my childhood. For a panicky moment, I wanted to run from everyone, off into the woods to hide, before I turned uphill again to the proper gathering place, I looked across the grass to the spot where the peonies, drooping now in the afternoon's heat, imperfectly concealed the wound in the ground we had made that morning. I don't remember much of my father's funeral, the heat of the sun overhead, the black yarmulkes on the heads of the men, and the dark, complicated, Hebrew words in their mouth, in their mouths, the Kadesh, the prayer for the dead. My father had wanted his three friends to say for him. A week later, I returned briefly to Ohio to pack more clothes and speak with my supervisor about taking a leave of absence from my job for the rest of the summer. At the night, at the time of my father's death, I'd been working with problem adolescents and their families in a day treatment program at a community mental health agency based in Dayton Hospital. My patients were young teenage boys who were in mental health lingo considered 
SBD, Severe Behavior Disordered. In other words, they've created such a degree of havoc in their classrooms and were so often truant that no public school would have them. The learning center where I worked was a last-ditch attempt to prevent institutionalization. institutionalization. (laughs) The boys I worked with greeted my leaving with sullen silence and outbursts of misdirected anger. I was letting them ha- I was letting them down. Just when things were starting to get a little bit better, one of the mothers said bitterly. I felt guilty about leaving. I also felt relieved. Nine months of tackling their overwhelming problems had humbled and exhausted me. Let someone else try, I thought. Besides, I told myself my mother needed me. She shouldn't be alone, and there was so much to be done in Woodstock. A list of all the paintings and drawings had to be drawn up, and each work photographed for an appraisal. We had to find a good estate lawyer. There was too much at stake to leave those things up to dealers and lawyers and accountants, no matter how much my father had trusted these people. But I wasn't sure where to begin. The art world was a mystery to me. I had never been involved with decisions concerning my father's work. My mother, knowing this, was hesitant to accept my involvement at first, although she was aware she couldn't manage alone. I was an intrusion on her privacy. Her anger when I relabeled some envelopes in my father's desk drawer was crushing to me in those early days. She'd always been so gentle with me, but she was furious that I'd erased anything in his handwriting. I would be too, actually. With Philip gone, it was more than she could bear that first year for anything of his, of his to be moved or touched or changed in any way. His clothes stayed in the closets, his glasses on the table by the telephone. I soon learned to disturb as little as possible. I have to make an aside here. I think that was why, that was very disappointing for me when my father died that yeah, I just, everything was just, like, done away with immediately, almost. And and the same thing with my grandmother. It's like, she was 99, and she lived in that house for her, almost her entire life. You know, she married young, and they had that house in Santa Barbara. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's really hard the way people cope with death. You know, I know they needed to sell the house, but you could wait for letting some of the people in her life, like me, the great, uh, the first granddaughter, to at least grieve just a tiny bit (laughs) before dismantling the whole damn house. That was such a mess. It's hard for me to think back on some things in my life about how disrespectful people have been with other people's emotions you know I don't know if this is part of that but just thought about that in my own life okay back to the text let's see that summer though that summer through the making of difficult decisions the doing of all that had to be done the photographing and listing the arguing and crying and explaining my mother and I became close again as we had not been 
since the shy days of my childhood, before I had real friends of my own, when we would go out together hunting fossils on the shores of the Ashokan, Ashokan Reservoir. What took longer, much longer, was for David and Renee McKee and Louis Bernstein, my father's accountant, to discover that I was more than an interloper, an unwelcome, if entitled, family middler in their well-established and smoothly running business relationship. My father had barely mentioned me, I found out much later from Lou Bernstein, who in time became my close friend. My father had been something of an old-fashioned patriarch. His business was his business. Even my mother had been relegated to the waiting room, while Philip and his accountant talked over business matters. I was even more in the dark. I was even more in the dark. A protected child, I've never known anything specific about the family finances. Though nothing was ever said directly, it was quite clear that my participation in the affairs of the estate of Philip Guston was created, was greeted with a certain begrudging acceptance. Every week or two, I took the bus into the city from Woodstock, limp from the assault of New York in summer. I arrived at the gallery for our meetings, bedraggled and a bit disoriented. I felt out of place. I listened as they talked, tried to follow, trying to follow the logic of their strategies, the legal reasoning, the plans for shows and sales. At first, I was hesitant to ask for clarification when I didn't understand. I didn't want to reveal my own ignorance. Besides, I sensed a certain uneasiness with my scrutiny. These people had loved my father, too, and were grieving his loss. I knew that, and I sympathized. But our needs were at a cross-purposes. Mine to become a part of my father's life, theirs to keep things as they had been, had been when he was alive, just as my mother was trying to do. After these meetings, I'd call Tom in Ohio, tearfully, and tell him how unsure of myself I felt. Come on, don't be so timid, he urged me. Just say what you think. But they were the experts, I'd answer. What did I know? That made him angry. You're Philip's daughter, aren't you, he'd say. Doesn't that count for something? Certainly I wanted it to, but I wasn't so sure it did. Not with these people. For a long time, though, my sense of ignorance eventually yielded as I did learn more, there continued to be moments of awkwardness, little bubbles of tension, of looks being passed and averted eyes, messages that I, who'd been so good as a group therapist at coaxing problems out into the open between people, felt helpless to decode or diffuse. In July, David and Renee McKee came up to help us photograph and list the paintings in my father's estate, a process that took several long days the large cinder block storage area behind the studio constructed to hold my father's work of the past five years was like a treasure trove. Paintings I had never seen lined its walls, six and seven deep. Wow. Renee and I set up our cameras on tripods while David masked the glass-blocked windows and set the bright hot lights on either side of a clear area of wall. One by one, we moved each painting in front of the cameras, assigned it a number, measured it, determined whether it was oil, acrylic, or gouache, and remembered it was painted on can and whether it was painted on canvas, masonite board, or paper. We looked for inscriptions on the front and back. 
My mother sat there in a director's chair, wide-eyed and talkative for the first time since my father's death. We all enjoyed ourselves, I think. It was exhilarating, this process of inventory, a salute to old friends, a meeting of new ones. Fully two-thirds of the work I had never seen before. There were, there were bizarre images hidden away in that storage area, paintings too strange or too personal to have been exhibited, works that looked as if my father had been trying to see just how far he could go. <laughs> Nixon on the beach. Nixon on the beach at San Clemente, dragging a leg swollen with phlebitis, a tear, a tear hanging from his stubbled jowl. Enormous toes like slabs of bacon, or a ghoulish gray fellow with a thatch of hair like a spaniel's, a spaniel's ear grinning over a riotous plate of spaghetti, each strand of which was painted with absolute authority and delight. Or two slightly limp hearts, one of them stud, studded like a trash can lid, stacked on a box like tired, trapped inmate intimates, a valentine of sorts, a painting called Martyr, clearly a send-up of St. Sebastian. Had my father been thinking of the Montagna in the Ca de Oro in Venice? Or Sadeo showed a backless coffin like wooden box pierced by arrows in three dozen places. After the McKees had left, my mother and I continued to work, photographing and listing the drawings. By working methodically, we made our way through the drawers of the drawing cabinets, but finally there came the day when that too was finished. When the last photograph had been taken, the last measurement made. Abruptly, that buoyant sense of daily rec- daily discovery had been that had been sustaining me vanished, and I felt as bleak and emptied out as I had in the days right after my father's death. I had seen everything. There would be no more. From then on, I would. From then on, I would feel always feel cheated, wondering what my father might have painted next. Hmm. Let's photograph the work that's hanging in the house, I said to my mother, desperate to keep going. We began an inventory of her collection. From the back of the dresser drawer in her bedroom, at the very last, when everything else had been listed, she pulled two rolled-up canvases from the 30s that I had never seen before. What's wrong, I asked as she handed them to me. He never forgave me, she whispered, shamefaced. Forgave you? For what? Making him change his name. I unrolled one of the canvases, a highly stylized nude model beside an empty easel. On the left, in small black letters, it said, Philip Goldstein, 1935. Early in the, earlier in the summer, we had opened his safety deposit box to find it full of official papers and petitions about his name change. He had kept every scrap of paper, every lawyer's letter, every form, long after any question of illegality was involved. I knew that my father had felt tremendous regret about having changed his name, that in his eyes it had become a shameful, cowardly act, 
and I knew that after the Second World War and the revelations of the Holocaust, when it became crucial for him to reclaim his Jewish identity, it was too late to change it back. His reputation was already established with the new name. My mother showed me the place where, on one of his earliest paintings, Mother and Child from 1930, he had repainted his earlier signature, carefully matching the pigment to conceal the change. He'd given in to the pressure of her parents, her parents' concern over rising anti-Semitism in the years before the war, she told me, weeping. It was she who had forced him to do this terrible thing. But he must have had reasons of his own, I protested. There must be more to it than that. It was hard to imagine my father caving in under family pressure. Of course, Philip's story, as I learned later from reports of guilty confessions he'd made to friends, was that he'd decided on his own to change his name before even meeting her parents and that my mother had been against it. He'd been certain her parents would accept Augustine more readily than a Goldstein as their son-in-law. Whatever the reason, there is no question that the anguish and shame my father felt about having changed his name animated, at least in part, one of the lifelong themes in his work, the search for self through the process of masking and unmasking. He loved Venetian painting, Domenico Tiepolo's poignant masked figures of the carnival, his paintings of masked children from the 1940s, drawn almost, sorry, I got distracted with my own thoughts here, sorry. (laughs) His paintings of masked children from the 1940s draw most directly from most directly on this tradition, of course, but the later images of hooded figures, the Ku Klux Klansmen of 1968 through 1972, are an even more potent restatement of a theme that had preoccupied him since the early 1930s. By concealing their identities, these masked creatures seem to reveal the truer, deeper selves of their fantasies, hidden wishes, dreams. Throughout his life, my father waged a war within himself, with himself between on the one hand, I'm going to start that paragraph over in a minute, one second. I was trying to see if I should pause here. I think this is one of the longer chapters at the end here. I think I'll make one more segment. Throughout his life, my father waged a war with himself between, on the one hand, the impulse to be private, secretive, witness his story of hiding in his boyhood closet when the family came, and on the other, an enormous need he had to unmask, to reveal, to disclose all, and in the most personal, costly way. In the evolution of a lifetime's painting, it's as if there is a progressive struggle and resolution and return to the same conflict again and again. In his late work, when finally all was at risk, he wrestled quite openly and with a sort of joyous abandon 
with the issues of his own culpability. Hmm. I just had a thought with this as an aside, just for my own work. I think as of today, I'm making a commitment to myself out loud on a video or out loud on an audio cast here that I no longer will paint over my old work. I'm just going to leave it like it is. And I need to go forward and not cover over so much. I cover over. I have covered over almost entirely my whole lifetime of painting here. My lifetime, 20 years. Um, to finish work mainly, but I think what I'm going to start doing is be a little more conscious of keeping record of paintings and drawings just as they are and maybe I will also start writing about my work in earnest I mean there are times when I have written things down oh man it's in different sketchbooks it's all over the place I once told my son my poor older son (laughs) he looked at me at the time and thought I was crazy I think because I think it was about 10 or 15 years ago and I told him I said when I die you have to put all my journals in order (laughs) because I said none of it's in order in my sketchbooks I just pick up a book wherever I find it and start writing it's not really fair Oh, I think that will be my commitment to myself going forward is to be more organized in my writings and even in my painting I I have a lot of different works that I have just left them be with the original sketch or drawing or initial paintings there are many I have covered over in my lifetime here Anyway, that's just an aside. Okay. My mother and I finished the inventory and I moved on from the works themselves to the catalogs and articles, the photographs, his correspondence. I spent my time organizing, filing, grateful that there was still so much to do. Outward, outdoors, we were, sorry, Outdoors, while we had been so absorbed in our listing and photographing, a renewal had begun. The trees, stripped of their foliage foliage by the gypsy moths in May and June, were experiencing a second spring. It was April and August. New leaves burst forth, the bare trees rapidly progressing from a light green haze of buds to the lush deep greens of high summer. A month later, it was as if nothing had happened. I could walk in the woods again. In September, after the long summer in Woodstock had ended and my mother declared herself able to manage on her own, I went back to Ohio and quit my job. (laughs) Good Samaritan Hospital offered to extend my leave, although I was flattered. I told them no. I had to be free to spend time in Woodstock with my mother, I explained, and go to New York for business, but it was more than that. That summer in Woodstock, I'd begun to rediscover an earlier, neglected self, a young girl left behind some 20 years before, filled with vague longings and wishes for her life. 
What that meant exactly, I didn't know yet. I didn't yet know. Tom was just beginning his doctoral work in psychology and would be immersed in that for the next few years. He certainly didn't need me around all the time. And my two sons were in high school, self-sufficient, involved with their own lives. As for my patients, my work as a counselor, I was in the common parlance of the day, burned out. (laughs) I get it. Too much mothering and too many years of helping others find their way had left me feeling depleted. What I missed about my job, I discovered, was not the work itself, but the sense of professional identity, the business of being able to define myself in terms of what I did for a living when I met people at a cocktail party or an opening. Once again, I let myself slip into that old eclipse self I remembered so well. Once again, I was Philip Guston's daughter. It was a strange, uprooted year that fall and winter and spring of 1980 and 1981, a year spent traveling back and forth from Ohio to New York to Woodstock every few weeks, never feeling fully at home anywhere. I was floating in a vacuum, not anchored to anything, waiting for some gravitational tug to determine my direction. For the first time in my adult life, I was freed from the necessity of earning a living. All of a sudden, there was money. The result of the acceptance that had finally begun to settle on my father's last paintings. I didn't have to work. I was free to do what I really wanted to do, whatever that was to be. I had no idea. The prospect was terrifying. That November, we were all gathered one evening on the 75th floor of the John Hancock Building in Chicago in an apartment belonging to Jerry Elliott, one of the few collectors who'd made an early and risky commitment to my father's late work. As if sharing a well-kept secret... this motorcycle guy has to keep running back and forth, but he is. As if sharing a well-kept secret, he took my sons into one of the bedrooms for a view of the lakeshore curving beneath us in a shining web of lights. The living room blinds had been drawn, he explained, because the spectacular view detracted attention, detracted attention away from the art on the walls. I want people to look at the paintings, he said. My father's retrospective, now on its third of five legs, after a summer spent at the Corcoran Gallery in Washington, D.C., looked wonderful in the intimate gallery-like setting of the Museum of Contemporary Art. At some point during the evening, I found myself talking with David McKee, Flushed with several glasses of wine, I was telling him how much more I understood my father's painting now that I had seen it all. The more I got to know the work, I said, the more fascinating I found it to be. Hmm, his eyes narrowed in thought. Have you given any thought to doing a catalogue raison? Raison? Me? I was taken aback, but also pleased. But I'm no art historian. I wouldn't know how. David waved a hand dismissively. Oh, don't worry about that. These things are quite straightforward, really. I would help you. Once he'd said it aloud, it made perfect sense. A catalogue raison. 
it sounded so erudite, so scholarly. So that's what I've been preparing for, I thought. Until then, all this compulsive organizing seemed like some odd species of grief, a way of keeping my father close to me yet removed. So it was to have some real use after all. Naming and structuring the project would give me a purpose, a goal. More important, it would give me a sense of authority in my dealings with my father's estate. In retrospect, though, it seems painfully indicative of my state of mind then that I needed David McKee's suggestion. No, permission, for that's what it really was really, to undertake a project I'd already begun. Dusting off my slight... Dusting off my slight undergraduate art history training, I rolled up my sleeves and went to work. During the next several years, I was able to assemble and then computerize a reasonably complete record of my father's work. For each painting from the 50 years of his career, I compiled a listing of physical details, size, medium, inscriptions, condition, exhibitions, photography, bibliography, and ownership. Though straightforward, as David McKee had said, this quickly became a surprisingly demanding task. In the last seven years, I've corresponded with hundreds of museums and galleries and collectors. As an ongoing, archi- as an ongoing archival project, the Catalogue Rousson had given me has given me a medium through which it seems I can continue to distill indefinitely the nature of my connection with my father and his work. Don't make it whole, your whole life, Inge, David McGee warned that night in Chicago. He was right, certainly. But at the time, the work seemed, as it still does, a useful emotional bridge, a way of both having my father and letting him go. Months go by when I am writing and thinking about other things. New works, requests for authentication, trickle in. The provenance, the history of a painting's ownership is never up to date, but that is the nature of such a project. And strangely, or perhaps it is not so strange, I feel more legitimate, more secure in my role as archivist and caretaker of my father's paintings than I ever did as his daughter. first year I followed the San Francisco retrospective as it opened in Washington, Chicago, and New York. I was amazed to see the same paintings look so different in each setting. After paying proper respects to the museum people, our little band of roving devotees would gravitate together. My mother, Tom and I, the McKees, Rossfeld, Ed Broida, and a few others. We would roam around the galleries, go out to eat, and tell Gustin stories. Wouldn't Philip have been thrilled by this show? we'd say, or the few times something went wrong. It's a good thing Philip's not here to see this. And always we came back to the work, looking and looking at the pictures, hung in varying combinations in different rooms, all of us in some way still investing in the paintings, our feelings for the man who made them. There were many self-portraits among these late paintings, images of the artist masked and unmasked, that I found difficult to look at first. Look at at first. Philip himself seemed inseparable from his pictures, especially those pictures. They were more personal, more telling than his work clothes or the contents of his pockets. 
I often had an eerie feeling standing in the room with them, as if some essence of my father had been mixed in with the pigment and laid down there on these canvases, some sort of potent trace mineral that continued to radiate his physical presence. Over time, as the pain of seeing them diminished, these paintings have continued to fascinate me, to deepen in their meanings. Strangely, there is no narcissism in them, as one might expect to find in such an extended series of images of the artist. For the painter of portraits, as Peter Tarnable points out in Philip Roth's My Life as a Man, his own physio- physiognomy is that the right word? His own physiognomy, og- physiognomy, physiognomy. <laughs> I think it's physiognomy. I don't know if I've, I've heard that word like that. P h y s i o, physio, g n o m y, physiognomy, becomes the closest subject at hand, demanding scrutiny, a problem for his art to solve, given the enormous obstacles to truthfulness the artistic problem. So let me read that again because I messed up. For the painter of portraits, as Peter Tarnapol points out in Philip Roth's Life as a Man, his own physiognomy becomes the close subject at hand demanding scrutiny, a problem for his art to solve, given the enormous obstacles to truthfulness the artistic problem. He is not simply looking into the mirror because he is transfixed by what he sees. Hmm, that's interesting. Many of his, many of my father's pictures seem to possess mysterious powers of renewal. Even after years of hanging on the same wall and, begin, and being seen daily, they still surprise and disturb and delight. But I didn't realize that then. If I had, I suppose it wouldn't have been so upsetting to complete the inventory. Marvelous artists have been... Marvelous artists are made of elements which cannot be identified. My father had written of Picasso and DeCherico. Marvelous artists are made of elements which cannot be identified. My father had written of Picasso and DeCherico. The alchemy is complete. Their work is strange and will never become familiar. Perhaps it is this same strangeness that lends his paintings their transformational quality. Perhaps it is their truthfulness. I don't know. What I do know is that I am not alone in seeing it. The San Francisco retrospective closed at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York in September of 1981 and the paintings were shipped back to their owners. I I wandered around the Whitney the last day of the show, I remember, feeling sad and let down. Another ending. But other major shows have followed in the years since, in Europe, in Central America, in Australia, and in the United States. More exhibitions are planned, and there is always something new to see. During the fall of 1980, there was a letter from the poet Bill Berkson, the St. Mark's Poetry Project wanted to do an homage homage to Philip Guston that December. Would you would we come? And would my mother permit some of her own poems, which Philip had illustrated, to be exhibited? Reluctantly she agreed and we made plans to go together. 
The St. Mark's Parish House was crowded that night. All the folding chairs had long since been claimed by the time we arrived, late from dinner with the McKees. Embarrassingly, chairs materialized for us from nowhere down the front of the hall. People were standing several deep in the back and sitting on the floor. I sat there in the audience, feeling both exposed and invisible in that small sea of faces. Morty Feldman, reading from an essay he'd been writing for the catalog of my father's last works, which were being organized into a show by the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., offered a touching portrait of the friendship between two stubborn, difficult men. I have resistance, he says. Sorry. I have resistance, he said, in talking to anyone who could tell me why Gustin assembled these last works the way he did. My attitude is not unlike my father refusing to ask for directions the same we were the time we were lost in Hoboken. I remembered that in Woodstock before the funeral, Morty had spent long hours puzzling over the studio wall of the last works my father had left, as if trying to decipher where he and Philip had lost one another. For me, he continued, the real research would be in reenacting that special kind of loneliness Gustin shared with others throughout the 70s, a concern that something just might last a little longer, that our lifespan would not be a measurement of time documented on early, middle, late horizon. Two rabbis who were close friends survived the Holocaust. One went alone to London, the other to somewhere in, the South, in South America. The rabbi in London wrote his friend, Too bad you're so far away. From where? was the reply. One of the most memorable afternoons I spent with Gustin started off with, So, I'm not Michelangelo, as I was walking up the step stairs to his studio. I looked at the start of a new painting for some clue to his depression. The clue wasn't there. Okay, so you're not Michelangelo, you're El Greco. Gustin's face lit up with relief. A small Gustin painting from 1967 hangs over my desk on a white ground, just two elongated black shapes about seven inches from each other. Their positioning in the field is characteristic of how Gustin freezes a painting during the 60s. That one on the left, he said, is telling the other one his troubles. Of all the artists I have been close to through the years, the poet Stanley Kunitz began. Philip was by all odds the most demonic. This daemon in him had an enormous appetite for life and art and food and drink and friendship. And I mustn't forget, and I mustn't forget talk, not gossip or frivolous banter, but high talk through the night on the grand themes that agitate a serious mind, excited talk with little pockets of moisture that bubbled at the corners of his mouth. Others who drifted in and out of the room eventually collapsed or disappeared, but at dawn, Philip was still at top form replenishing his vehemence with a last or next-to-last nightcap as we raided the refrigerator and brewed a fresh pot of coffee. The audience laughed gently at this memory, and I laughed with them. I, too, had sat up with my father until dawn talking. 
This is my image of Philip from the 50s and 60s, he continued, before he turned his back on the New York art world and settled permanently with Musa in Woodstock, a move that somehow signaled for me the end of an era, the breaking up of an intimately knit world of exhilarating companionships. Things were never quite the same after that. Kunintz paused, somber, and then his face brightened. Volcanic is another word, I think, of in connection with Philip. He did not so much occupy his physical frame as seethe within it. His rage was always perilously close to the surface, ready for instantaneous eruption, attended by a darkening of his whole countenance and a creasing of his brow. On such occasions, you could almost watch the horns growing out of his temples. He did not suffer fools gladly, or at all. About his work, he was superlatively touchy. Once a woman, a stranger, gave him a lift after a party. As they were driving along, she made polite conversation by telling him that she preferred his older paintings to his new. Stop the car, Philip shouted, and jumped out on the highway. The stories continued. Poets spoke of his generosity, of his illuminations for their books, of his inspiration, his humor, the richness of his imagery, his appetite for talk. Some of what was said was very moving. There were tears here and there. I looked at my mother, but she didn't return my glance. She sat straight in her chair, hands folded, feet tucked beneath her. Her face was perfectly still, unreadable. Acutely conscious of all the eyes on her, checking her for responses, she sat there politely, distantly looking as if she would have liked to disappear. She was enduring this no more, I thought. She was enduring this no more, I thought. Her poems, illustrated by my father, were pinned up around the periphery of the room. What did it mean to her that they were being, that they were being seen? Was there comfort for her there? Was she less alone in her grief? I too was an was uneasy as the night wore on. The big room was dense, with feeling airless as if my father's substance was being sucked up by too many others. Like a gallery opening, this public outpouring of appreciation, far from giving comfort, was threatening to swamp my own tenuous connection with my father. Surreptitiously, I looked around the room, seeing faces I knew from childhood and many younger faces I didn't know. Perhaps no one else there that night, not even my mother, had feelings as mixed as my own. Yes, of course, I was moved and exalted, filled as I'd been so many times before an enormous sense of privilege. It was such a gift to have known him, been witness to him, been exposed to this man. That was the message repeated over and over that evening. So what was wrong with me? Why couldn't I pay homage, too? Why couldn't I simply be grateful for the small part of him I had known, my share, and leave it at that, and let him go? But for me on that night at St. Mark's, all the eloquence and affection poured out by his friends was at risk of curdling 
becoming another sour episode in a lifetime of not measuring up. The mythic presence of Philip Guston was simply overwhelming. That evening it was palpable. All these young writers and students, for whom my father had become model as well as a f- as friend, that he was dead only made it worse, I realized with a shock, for his death fed a new, even more romantic vision in which his flaws, his imperfections, his terrible anxieties, even now his anger, had become the qu- occasion for new myth-making. If you have a hero... Look again, you have diminished yourself in some way. So said Sheldon Kopp, the author of If You Meet the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him, a book on transference and psychotherapy I'd admired back in the days when sweeping changes in personality seemed possible. For years I'd believed I'd killed my Buddha, had dealt with my father, as we used to say at encounter programs in my days as a counselor there. In southwestern Ohio, far from the New York art world, none of my friends knew a thing about modern painting, much less who Philip Guston was. Nor would it have mattered to them, had they known. It was another world, completely, from the one I'd grown up in. And I'd been, and I'd been happy there, cut off from my past, no longer wholly obscured by my father, I'd at least managed to reach the penumbra, the area of partial eclipse. With with distance and detachment, I concealed my insecure self, containing her tightly curled within me like a naughty child sent up to her room for making a nuisance of herself. I was grown up. I was a mature, competent woman with a career and a family of her own. I didn't need my father, or any man for that matter, to tell me who I was. And then my father died, and I found out how hard, how full of illusions this business of growing up really is. Each year in the fall, my mother takes a different painting from storage to hang in her living room. A new presence to keep her company during the long Woodstock winter. This last year, she has chosen a picture that surprises me. Are you sure about this one, I asked, before we hang it? She nods. It is a portrait of T.S. Eliot as an old man, lying in bed, the rictus of death, already on the gaunt profile. Excuse me. During his last year, my father had been reading Eliot's Four Quartets, the great final work. It was after his first heart attack that my father made this painting and named it East Coker, T-S-E. When I came home from the hospital, he told an interviewer in San Francisco, I wanted to paint a man dying because that was what had happened to me. It had been, it had, it would have been too obvious to paint himself, he said, so he simply began to paint a head only later noting the resemblance to T.S. Eliot, including the Buddha ear with its long lobe. For Eliot, my father said, had been interested in Buddhism. It is the last of his bed paintings, the final entry in a series that begins with the dreamy moonlit reverie of a young man lying sleepless in Ohio City 
in Sanctuary, 1944, which hangs in my bedroom again now, as it did when I was a child, and continues through the savage and tender self-portraits of the 70s, were where alone or with my where alone or with Musa, my father heavy with the melancholy of aging and illness and art takes refuge like Oblomov in bed. I don't think that sounds right, but I'm not going to reread it. <laughs> An uncompromising work, East Coker, is as pure and starkly beautiful as it is grim. One of a group of paintings we have come to call difficult. Some years ago, it was sold to a well-known collector, only to have the collector return it to David McKee, almost immediately claiming his wife couldn't bear to live with it. I remind my mother of this. Yes, she says, but I always liked it. I nodded, I nod, saying nothing, realizing how foolish I am to worry about my mother spending the long winter alone with this disturbing image. After Tom and I have hung the painting, I go to my father's bookshelf, pull out the well-thumbed book of poems, and turn to East Coker. And it is there that I find, as my father found before me, the eulogy I have been looking for. Old men ought to be explorers. Here and there does not matter. We must be still, and still moving, into another intensity, for a further union, a deeper communion. Through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise. In my end is my beginning.